0: So next week, there'll be a price for admission. Uh, Heather will be singing again. I uh, just want y'all to give you a heads up. Instead of an offering, we're just going to start charging. So uh, how amazing did the team do on that song? Is that not incredible? I mean, uh, <laughs> if you've ever tried to sing that song in the car, which I have, and I am filling in for Heather if something goes wrong with the third service, um, it, it is quite the reach uh, vocally. But uh, man, the team just, just hit the, the park. I feel like sort of like the cannon went off. And like, here comes the BB. You know what I'm saying? I kind of have that feeling. And so, uh, man, what a great job. So I'm, I'm glad you're here. Welcome those in the, in the room, those in the overflow, of course, those watching online. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll kind of get all our hearts going the same direction. So Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. And thank you for the opportunity to have this moment with these beautiful people. And, and Lord, um, we've come, whether we know it or not, with the same idea. We want to be more like you. And in order for that to happen, you're going to have to touch us, change us from the inside out. And so uh, whether we are still exploring faith or whether we've been walking with you for a while, we want to give you a permission at this moment to say, do your work in me, whatever it is. Do you work in our relationships? Do your work in our finances? Do your work in my soul? Whatever it is. And so in order for that to happen, Lord, we need to hear just from you. So hide me in your cross. And when we leave today, may we be so impressed with who you are. In your name we ask these things amen well uh, in my line of work uh, uh, you won't be surprised I actually end up having to do a, or be involved in a lot of funerals it's kind of a perk and um, you know it's kind of what I have to do and so um, that that's okay it, it's, it's kind of you kind of learn to roll with it it's all about how you how you look at things and so it's kind of like a chance for Lisa and I to get dressed up in a free meal so there's that side of things that's kind of positive and other sides that aren't, that aren't quite so positive uh, but still that's something we have to do and and so uh, once I've kind of got used to doing funerals uh, what I've learned now at this stage in my life is every funeral that I go to, I start paying attention to the words that are, that are being spoken about a life, especially the older I get. All you old people with me, you're like, what are they saying about a person's life? And, and funerals could all begin with this, with this phrase, once upon a time, so-and-so was born. And that's every funeral could begin like that because all funerals end up telling the story of a life. They tell the story of the relationships, the presence or absence of faith, the Peace or lack of peace, the the hurts and betrayals, the love and security. All funerals tell that story. And as I hear some of the words being said about people at funerals, I think, man, I wish I would have known that person. or I wish I would have known that person better. I wish I would have had time carved out to spend with that person to hear more about their lives. But the opposite is also true. Can we all agree? The opposite is also true in the sense that we have all been to funerals where there wasn't a whole lot of good that was said. It was kind of like they were reaching for stuff, like they were a grandpa, you know, but not a very good one, you know, they had all these ideas, you know, just kind of putting flowers on things that weren't real, that they lived seemingly rather, I guess I would say mundane lives. And, and when it came to a moment for words to be spoken over a life, there wasn't much to say. And being exposed to both types of funerals has impressed on me that every life, your life, my life, we're all writing a story. We don't get to choose whether or not we're going to write a story. We just do. Every life writes a story. On the day you were born, imagine, you were actually given a name and a pen. And the rest of your days, you would write your story with that pen. And one day at the end, when someone ties a bow on your life, they will actually read the story that you wrote. And that leads to this this question for me. Your life's telling a story, but is it a compelling story? Your life, my life, we're all writing the story. You probably don't disagree with that, but what kind of story are you writing? And the word compelling can be defined like this. It means to evoking interest or admiration in a powerfully irresistible way. Truth be told, there are a good many of us who answer the question, is your life telling a compelling story with this? I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure. Life is pretty mundane. It's routine, and at times it's sort of seems rather meaningless and the chapters are kind of boring. I get up, I eat the same breakfast, I kiss the same spouse, do the same job, drive the same car to return to the same home and fall asleep in the same same chair watching the same show and then tomorrow I get up and do the exact same thing again and it just doesn't feel very compelling. Now I'll tell you why I take us down this rather morbid path today. It's because of what I've been sensing is happening in our body over the last probably three to four months. Even when I have guest speakers or when I have videos that they shoot and they show, you know, the video announcement, this, this verse keeps coming back in, even though I don't plan it. It keeps coming back into the discussion and it keeps showing up. And here's the verse. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Other translations say an abundant life or or life to the full. Is that what's happening for me? Is that what is happening for you? Do you feel that? You have this abundant life? Let me share the message paraphrase. A thief is only there to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus speaking. I came, Jesus said, so they can have real and eternal life. Get this. More and better life than they ever dreamed of. More and these are the words of Jesus. This isn't like Aesop's fables. These are the words of Jesus, a personal Savior and Lord to a good many listening to the sound of my voice right now. So the question that we have to face, with which will take some courage, is this. Do these words describe your life? Because if not, there's some kind of disconnect. And I fear there's a disconnect. And for a good many people, in true vulnerability and honesty, you would say, no, those words don't describe my life. People are asking, I have asked, if Jesus came to give us a compelling story, why do I feel it isn't happening? In my aged mind... Every good story starts with a typewriter. But typewriter people out here, come on, give me a little love. Okay, I see you people. Bless you. Nobody says a great story starts on a computer. Okay, nobody does that. Papers start on a computer, not great stories. A great story starts on a typewriter. I've never written a book. I don't know what I'm talking about. And it's a great analogy. It's romantic. But every good story, I think, has one thing in common. Whether it's war and peace or whether it's Goldilocks and the Three Bears, I think every great story has to have a compelling vision. And what I mean by that is a picture of what might be and why this story matters. Are, are you tracking with me? I think that's, that's the trick to every great story, great novel or whatever. So let me introduce God to this discussion so far. God is the author of history. My mentor and, and professor in undergrad used to, used to say, God is the author of his story. And I, and I like that. If God is the creator of all things... What story is he writing? What's the compelling vision God has? What is he up to in this difficult life that you and I are slugging it out in? What is driving it all from God's perspective? And do we matter in it? Does God have a compelling vision for humanity and for his relationship with me, with you? I think he does. And the irony is... His compelling vision has a potential to make my life compelling as well. I would suggest this is God's compelling vision. You, you might disagree, but you could write your own. Uh, I will do whatever it takes, God says, to be in a loving relationship with the people I've created, and I will prove it through my son, Jesus. Jesus. Several of the staff have joined me this year, and we're reading through the Scripture. And, um, and we're like, we've read Job, like Genesis and Job, and we're in Exodus right now. And so, um, so, so we have learned, even in these first early books of Scripture, we're reminded that from the very beginning, God has been on this mission. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told, Jesus is on his way. And I'm going to prove it to you, God says. I'm going to send you my son, Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus is born in this manger and he too comes with this compelling vision. I will bring people back into relationship with God even if it kills me. And it does. And the mission of God culminates on this empty cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. And this very same Jesus has this compelling vision for your life and for my life, not just as a whole, but individually. You know, whether you're young or old, he has this compelling vision for you and for me. And it's an abundant life. Uh, let me tell you why I believe this to be true. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he's been through the temptations and the baptism and all that stuff. He's on his way to Galilee, but he has to pass through this region called Samaria. And as he's passing through Samaria, he gets tired and he rests at this well that was dug by Jacob all the way back into the the book of Genesis, a couple thousand years before Jesus arrived. Jesus is tired, so he sits down to rest. He sends his disciples into town to get some pizzas and a happy meal. Here's how the story goes. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, just told you all that, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Hold on to that one. Hold on to the noontime piece. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, would you give me a drink? The woman was surprised because Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. If you've ever heard the good Samaritan story, you're familiar. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, but not just a Samaritan. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for for a drink? Now, Jesus is actually breaking all kinds of rules in this story. Right out of the gate, he is not living up to cultural expectations, which some of us love him for that. Samaritans and Jewish people do not get along. Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, should not even be in Samaria. He doesn't even belong there. Women in this culture were seen as second-class citizens, so you didn't spend much time speaking to them or associating with them, especially Samaritan women, And so Jesus shouldn't be talking to her at all. Why is the woman getting water at noon? Let's just pretend we don't have inside plumbing. I know some of you may not, but the majority of us say we have inside plumbing. And let's just pretend like the apocalypse has happened, which I'm prepared for, by the way. But if the apocalypse happens, and all of a sudden we're we're going to the well now to get water, that's kind of a cultural expectation. Is everybody with me? You've got it? You're apocalypse-minded? Okay, so we're, the wells happen. So the, the, If we all formed like a community like ethos, what time of day would we go to the well, say, in July? See, no one around here would say, hey, I got an idea, let's go at 1 o'clock on July 7th. We would vote them out of the community. We'd vote them out, you're not allowed. Why? Well, because you're going to be dripping with sweat by the time you even get finished. It's, it's so hot on July the 7th at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And besides that, if you have to use water for your very existence, the dishes and prepare meals and make bread or whatever's going to be involved, shouldn't we have the water in the morning instead of midday? You see, you guys are ready for the apocalypse now, just like me. We're all ready. We can do this. Not this woman. She comes at noon, and we're getting ready to discover Jesus is talking to a woman who has not been living a very compelling life, not an abundant life for certain, This woman's actually broken and and damaged. She's ostracized in the community so much so, she actually would rather get water in the heat of the day instead of the morning with the rest of the women in order to avoid the judgment, the scandal, the hatred, the mocking, and the shame. Here's what you need to understand. She's going at noon because she has something to hide. And perhaps worst of all, she has so much shame about this, but most everybody in town knows it. So she goes to the well at noon when nobody will be there. Jesus replied to the woman, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me. And I would actually give you living water. It's important at this time that you begin to hear the theme music changing in the back of your mind. You know, like like movies do. Because abundant life tunes are playing in the background of this conversation. But the woman is confused. She doesn't quite understand. It's just lightly back there. And I don't blame the woman here. We, we all get accustomed to our mundane lives and our decisions to fly under the radar with our shame and guilt. It isn't the best life, but it's the life we know. And the idea that there might be another option sort of unnerves us, unsettles us. As you're sitting there listening to the sound of my voice, you're thinking, well, there may be a different life, but at least I know this life. So the woman, she strikes out, Sir, she says, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water you speak of? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well? How can you offer us better water than he and his son and animals enjoyed? This is sarcasm. This is spite. This isn't a theological conversation. This is an angry woman. Do you know why she's angry? She's angry because always behind anger, listen, is fear every time. (laughs) She's afraid. This stranger who's talking to her at the well is going to mistreat her as everybody else has in her terrible story. Jesus replies, anybody who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus doesn't bite on her cynicism. He doesn't match sarcasm for sarcasm, spite for spite, And once again, he issues this invitation to a compelling life. But like many of us, she's not having it. Her next words drip with sarcasm. Oh, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't ever have to come back here in the middle of the day to get water. Won't that be grand? Now, this often happens when there's sarcasm and spite and aggression. It's like a boxing match, and you're ducking all the blows that are coming at you. But then in a moment, you see an opening, and Jesus sees an opening right here in this story. And he says to her, go and get your husband. Isn't that a weird thing to say? Out of all the questions, out of all the commands he could have issued, he says go and get your husband the woman's still angry and spiteful and she says I don't have a husband and he the woman replied and Jesus says you're right you don't have a husband for you've had 5 and the man you're currently living with you're not even married to him that sounds a little harsh doesn't it i mean It certainly wouldn't pass the pastoral care classes of our day. Well, now I'm gonna leave the church and I'm gonna go over here where people are nice and that would be fair. If we didn't have the context for the entire story, Jesus would seem abusive and even hurtful. But because we know the context of the story, we know Jesus is actually being surgical. We know Jesus has a compelling vision for this woman. And the process that he's going to lead her on matters. Jesus lovingly exposes a lack of vision in her life. Hear me. And a default mindset that has produced defeat. A lack of intentionality of a life lived that has produced wandering and pain. Can anybody relate? Divorced women were damaged goods in the Samaritan culture. Her damaged state had sort of become the vision of her life. Like so many people we all know, And after being divorced, she's not marrying up. She keeps marrying down. (laughs) And she finds her life at such a point, she no longer cares about the security of any relationship because she doesn't trust any relationship. I'll just live with the latest dude. Keep in mind, this isn't the story she intended to write when she was born with a name and a pen. But she's written this story, and shame and regret are the title of every chapter. Do you all find it weird that Jesus just lays her open like that? See, you and I spend the majority of our lives pretending like we would never or we never have. Jesus comes out and says, here's what you did. You're like, whoa, Jesus, back up. We're kind of keeping that on the down low. He doesn't even work his way into it. He just throws it out. You're this. you right. And that was it. No hiding. He just lays it out. The woman has already concluded with her one and only life. She's going to be chronically thirsty and spend the rest of her lives coming at noon to get water. And Jesus calls the defeatist mindset and mentality out in her, the victim mentality, and says, You have settled, and it disarms the woman. You know the mentality, the mentality that says in your mind and the personal moment you have, I will never be good enough. That mentality, he calls it out. That mentality that says, I am damaged goods because I did this. He calls it out. He says, you don't have to live with that, with that junk. That doesn't have to be your life. And it disarms this woman when he calls it out and she acknowledges Jesus must be some prophet or weirdness and, and says, you know, I'd love to worship God, and, but I can't because I'm a Samaritan woman or a Samaritan. And the Samaritan is actually the tamest of the adjectives she could have used. She could have used, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an adulterer or, or I'm, I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman, I'm, 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 I'm low class, low rent, whatever words. So she's trying to build herself up like all of us do. I'm a Samaritan. But the abundant life music, if you've been paying attention, is continuing to build in the the background. And all the while, it's building. Jesus says this, the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Don't miss it. You don't worship the Father in race or in status or in mistakes or in shame and all that you're carrying with you. We worship the Father in spirit and in truth and the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Do you understand what that means for your one and only life? It means everybody gets to worship because it has nothing to do with what happened. It has nothing to do with what season of your life, the thing that you thought disqualifies you. Nothing to do with that. The first 10 chapters of your life has nothing to do with that. The first 60 chapters of your life has nothing to do with that. Because true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth, not by class, by race or reputation. And the woman is blown away. By this hope and now come on tell me you hear it the abundant life soundtrack is blaring and the and the scene is building because something earth shattering people oh good people out alive don't let this poor inadequate vessel keep you from hearing the truth that matters that's getting ready to come out of the mouth of jesus Something earth-shattering, life-altering is getting ready to happen, and it will impact your life and my life and the aligned community. So lean in, because everything is getting ready to change. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus said, I am the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Don't miss this. You have to hear it. A broken, damaged, sinful, stained social pariah is the very first person Jesus ever chose to tell he was the Messiah. Can somebody hear the chapters of their lives being rewritten? Come on, someone say amen. How about that? Turn to your neighbor, say, how about them apples? Go ahead, tell them, say, how about them apples? Come on, isn't that good news? Let's celebrate a little bit. How about that? Isn't that that worth celebrating? My gracious. You know what that means? We got a chance. (laughs) We got a possibility. This dear woman was the first person in history to hear Jesus say he is the living, breathing, walking, talking, compelling vision God has for the world. He didn't tell a Pharisee. He didn't call, tell somebody who had all the religious T's dotted and crossed, I's stuff all that. You know, he didn't have any of that. He told this beautiful lady that he is the living, breathing, walking, talking, compelling vision God has for the world. <laughs> the most important news headline in all of human history was made to this adulterous, bitter angry, rejected woman. And now everybody can hear the abundant music. She ran back into town. Why did she run into town when she spent her whole life running out of town? Because she has compelling vision for her life for the first time. She runs back into town and tells people who have been casting her out About Jesus. And then she says, I don't know everything, just come and see. We actually learned this from the end of the story. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. The woman with a less than compelling story, maybe like many of us felt when I started this message, was the first missionary in Christian history. And her story went from, I exist to hide in my shame and hope nobody finds out who I am, to I exist to tell the story of the man at the well. Uh, So what? I mean, it's been good preaching, I'll be honest, it has. But it's not because of me. It's because that's an amazing story, right? Somebody should make a movie. That's an amazing story. That's like, wow. You can't mess that up. It's right up there with, you know, the three bears and you know, all that. It's an it's amazing story. But we're all modern people. We're civilized. We have water that comes out of our taps. In his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years... Donald Miller writes these powerful words. It's really the inspiration behind our whole series. If you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you probably wouldn't cry at the end when he drove it off the lot or testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie and go home and put on a record to think about the story you'd seen. The truth is, you wouldn't really remember that movie a week later, except you'd feel robbed and want your money back, maybe tell your friends not to go see the movie. And nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo. But we spend years actually living those stories. And we expect our lives to be meaningful. The truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful, it won't make a life meaningful either. COVID's done a number on our society, hasn't it? I mean... I'm sure smart people will write dissertations about this, you know, what's happened sociologically. To use Miller's analogy, I think COVID over the past two years exposed that many of us have sort of settled for Volvos. Before COVID, we could sort of ignore that lack of vision for a compelling life because we distracted ourselves. We had schedules to keep, school to go to, relationships to maintain, games to play, parties to attend. And suddenly our distractions were removed, do you remember? And we were face to face with the lack of vision in our lives, think back to what we did in response to that. The dominant emotion of what we felt 2020, 2021 was anger. Do you remember what's behind anger? Fear. What if if we truly are insignificant? And so we expressed anger, aggression, fear, and division at anybody and anything in authority or whoever disagreed. For others, our anger was felt in the sense of depression or anxiety or angst, and we found ourselves reaching new lows. Still others, it pointed out flaws in our marriages or in our relationships with our children, and it was too much to bear because it was easy to think we were in love with our spouse or in love with our kids and living significant lives when we were living truly distracted lives. And for still more, it clarified a spiritual malaise in our lives, so much so, we still haven't found our way back. I found a lot of, maybe all those things happening in me over the last two years. And Jesus came to give us life to the full. That's a truth. So, does it describe your life? Let me clarify. Can you finish this sentence? I exist too. doesn't it seem like we should have answers to that? Doesn't it seem like we should have some crystal clear understanding of why we're still sucking air? I mean, if you can't answer that question, if we haven't answered that question, then we can expect to live aimless, boring lives. So here's... Here's what I want us to do as we begin this, this series. I would like to challenge all of us to identify a compelling vision for our lives. Maybe it's not what you're into now, but what could it be? I've never thought of having a vision for my life. I know that sounds terrible, but it's true. I, I think in the early years when I was doing my training, I think my vision, I would say, is I want to know God. Well, then life happened and kids happened and it changed. And so I thought hard this week as I sat in front of my typewriter. 25 years ago, Lisa and I made a commitment to each other that we would spend the rest of our lives entering the battle for each other's souls. And that was it. That's the theme of our marriage, enter the battle for each other's souls. And that means we intercede for one another. We encourage one another. We're, we're drawing each other into christ likeness as much as possible. That's the closest thing to a vision I have for my life. So I think that may be something of a vision statement for my life. I don't know. But now, today, it's more than just my marriage or my children. Do you understand? Now the idea of entering the battle for someone's soul it's part of our community it's part of our world and frankly it's part of the alive community i long for people anybody i meet to have the abundant life even if you drive a volvo i long for you to have an abundant life i don't want to let these moments go by anymore I want to join the battle for the waiter at our restaurant, (laughs) truly. If you've ever been out to eat with me, you know. I want to connect with those people over time because I I want them to come to Jesus. I want them to experience an abundant life. The stranger at a dinner party, the relative nobody likes, I'm choosing to enter the battle for their souls and in periods of sorrow or discouragement or anger or angst that we've all experienced over the last two years, it's been the constant in my life. It's been the constant, and I refuse to get distracted by government and politics and communities and different opinions about everything. And the whole time, I'm interpreting it through the lens. How can this help us enter the battle for someone's soul? Periods of sorrow or discouragement. That is the compelling vision that pushes me forward. Why do you exist? Come on. Why do you exist? Oh, it's to be a raise my kids. Okay, fine. That's fine. That's why everybody exists. What makes it compelling? What makes it compelling? Why do you exist? Because everything I read in Scripture says, I have come to give you an abundant life. Lord, I feel like I sort of walked us to the edge of a cliff and we're kind of hang here. There's no landing It's this moment where some of us will courageously go out and have a follow-up conversation around the lunch table or in our small groups or in our dorm rooms, in our marriages. Why do I exist? And Lord, I pray for two things. I pray for an absolute hunger to know the answer to that question. And everybody listening to the sound of my voice, be it a single mom trying to raise the kids, be it a husband who's trying to get a certain track at work, trying to achieve something, be it a teenager trying to figure out what it means to shine a light at the school they go to, a teacher trying to shine the light in a classroom, stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, oh Jesus just like the woman at the well would you come teach us to worship in spirit and truth affirm in us why we exist and second thing is this Lord for my friends listening to the sound of my voice who've never met the man at the well may their compelling vision start now run to him He can tell you everything you've ever done. No shame, no hiding, just brokenness. Ask him to forgive you for those sin. You know what they are. And he will. And you begin writing the next compelling chapter of your life. He is good. He is love. And he is present. In your name. Amen.